Our scripture today is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing in our study of First Peter, and uh, Peter, as we saw over the last few weeks, um, has, has first of all addressed this issue of how do we as Christians, our context, relate to a boss or uh, a teacher uh, that is opposed to us simply because we're Christian. Um, in that day and age, it was how would uh, a slave, a household slave or a servant who's become a Christian relate to uh, a master or the leader in the house who's, who's not a Christian. Um, he moved from that into how Christian spouses are to relate to a non-Christian spouse if they have one. And here in uh, verse 8 and verses 9 through 11, Peter's moving then into how we as Christians are to relate to one another and how we're to respond when we are reviled by those outside the church. Now remember, the backdrop to all of this, backdrop to 1 Peter, was the fact that these uh, early Christians, these new believers, lived in a culture that was opposed to Christianity. They were being eyed with suspicion. Uh, They were beginning to face opposition in the form of verbal abuse and vilification. It wasn't long after they received this letter that they began to experience violent persecution. And it's for those reasons that a study of First and Second Peter is so important for us. Our cultural moment is very similar to theirs. We're not obviously here in the States facing violent persecution, but we are being treated with suspicion. We are being uh, barraged with verbal abuse. We are being vilified in a lot of ways. We live in an age of weaponized words, of rapid fire reviling, of bump stock slander. That's magnified all the more because of social media. Our natural sinful tendency when we are reviled is to revile in return. It's hard to leave our reputation in God's hands. It's hard to feel like we're losing the argument. It's hard to feel as though someone else is getting the upper hand, someone who is actually slandering God and not willing to acknowledge Him. We want to defend ourselves. We want to defend our honor. We feel as though we have to defend God. We don't want to look like a fool. And so we perpetuate that cycle of verbal violence, especially on social media. It is just so easy to lob grenades from behind our computer screens. And because we're sinful, 
We're not only tempted to respond to non-Christians that way, we're tempted to bring that into the church, to bring that same kind of determination to repay reviling with reviling into our relationships with fellow believers. An individual Christian, therefore, and an entire church can end up looking very much not like Jesus Christ and really look no different from the world. Who, when Jesus Christ was reviled and did not revile in return, even from the cross, he blessed. And we have a hard time doing the same. We're called to be unlike the world in this respect. We're called to be an alternate society that offers a preview of the kingdom of God. We're called to be a people that reflect the kingdom of God that is marked by peace, not the sword, literal or verbal. We're called to be a refuge from the hostility and incivility of the world and to be examples of grace and civility in the world. But we aren't. Peter's concern here in this passage is that we not bring the ugliness out there in here, into our relationships with one another, that we not let the stress we feel as Christians in a post-Christian culture impact the way we treat one another. Rather, what he's going to tell us is double down on your love for one another. Work all the harder to demonstrate to one another and to the watching world what relationships in the kingdom of God can look like now and one day will look like. And to that end, in this section of the letter, his focus is on our words, on how much our words matter. So he calls us in this passage to three things with respect to our words. First, he calls us to be a people known for our wholesome words. Second, he calls us to bless when attacked with weaponized words. And then third, he calls us to remember that the king is near and hears our desperate words. We're called to be a people known for our wholesome words. We're called to bless when attacked with weaponized words. And we're called to remember that the king is near and he hears our desperate words. That's where we're headed. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us. Lord, we, oh boy, we're so tempted to think that all we need is a little bit of correction in the way that we speak. Help us to see that our hearts are the problem, that our hearts are only healed and cured as we look to you, and, and that it's only as we rest in the fact that you, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, you're near, and you hear us when we cry to you, that we can then turn and offer words of, of wholesomeness and hope and peace to all who would speak to us, whether they be words of blessing or cursing. And we ask that you would help us, that you would glorify your name through this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're called to be a people known for our wholesome words. We see that in verse 8. Take a look there with me real quick. Chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Verse 9, what follows all the way through the end of chapter 4, is pretty much about how to respond when you are suffering 
simply for the fact that you are a Christian. Here in verse 8, it's like Peter is pausing long enough to say, listen, you guys have got to be for one another. There has got to be an, a humility, a unity, a brotherly love marked by tenderness and sympathy that sets you apart from the world. So in a way, verse 8 is distinct from verses 9 and 10 and 11 and all the way through to the end of chapter 4. But it also connects to verses 9 through 11 on account of what Peter says in 9 through 11 about our words. If verses 9 through 11 are about how to bless when attacked with weaponized words, then verse 8 is ultimately about being people known for our wholesome words. The Bible says a lot about how we're to talk to one another. And one of the most comprehensive and convicting passages is found in Ephesians 4. Paul in Ephesians 4:29 writes this, "Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen." That's Ephesians 4:29, 4:31 uh, Paul writes, "Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. In other words, your words. Your words need to be words that are wholesome, words that build up, words that are for the good of the person who is listening, not words that are filled with bitterness and spill over into slander and accusations and all form of malice. So if Ephesians 4 only says, if Ephesians 4 says only wholesome words, your words, only wholesome words, that's Ephesians 4.29, then 1 Peter 3.8 describes the heart from which such wholesome words flow. A heart that is characterized by humility and by love. So take a look again with me at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble mind. Five adjectives, five things that he re refers to there. Right at the center, brotherly love. That I love the fact that the word that, that, uh, that Peter uses here is from that, you know, Greek word phileo, you know, that there's three different forms of love, agape, phileo, eros, you know, eros, this idea of, of agape love. We think of godlike love, kind of a, a willingness to love even our enemy. There's not necessarily this idea of affection in agape love, but more of a determination to love as God loves. Peter doesn't use that word here. He uses the word that's, that's uh, from the same root as phileo, philadelphos, to show brotherly love, to show an actual family affection for one another. It's interesting. That's the word that is used to describe God the Father's love for his son, Jesus Christ. It's also the same word that's used to describe Jesus' love for his disciples. This love that is characterized by the kind of affection that you see within families, brotherly love, Peter says our love for one another needs to be the same way. Not just a kind of a determination to love, but an actual feeling of affection for one another. So it's not surprising that around that, on the, on the front side and the back side of that brotherly love, you have these words in verse 8 of sympathy 
and a tender heart. Sympathy, simply the ability to feel what someone else is feeling. It's to, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, as Paul says in Romans 12, 15. A tender heart, it just refers to having a heart of compassion. So having that brotherly love, this, this, this empathy, this feeling of sympathy and, and affection for another person, it, it flows from, it's, it, it leads to even this unity of mind and this unity of, uh, of personhood that you see at the beginning of verse 8 and at the end. All of you have unity of mind at the end of verse 8, have a humble mind. And so this idea of, I, I've, I'm this kind of person by God's grace that has a humility, a willingness to put other people before my own, a unity of mind that we've achieved together because we're all humble enough to set aside our preferences, or at least some of them, for the good of the whole, that's springing from this brotherly love and affection that we have for one another that's evidenced by sympathy and that's evidenced by a tenderness of heart. Now, how does that connect with our words? Well, the way in which you arrive at unity of mind, the way in which you show sympathy and tenderness of heart, the way in which you demonstrate true humility, the way in which you give evidence of brotherly love is largely through your words. It's the way in which we speak and not just the way in which we act toward one another that we give evidence of how we really feel. Jesus said the same thing. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our words reveal what's in our hearts, for good or for ill. The implication then is that if we're not a people characterized by wholesome words, the problem is in our heart. James touches on that, James 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. We're filled, James says, with desires. We've talked about this before. Desire in the Bible is not a bad thing. It's when desire becomes an epi-desire, a hyper, an over-desire, that things get out of whack. The desire, therefore, may be for something good. But we want that good thing apart from God, and it becomes then an inordinate desire. To want the good things God offers apart from God is, and I'm going to introduce an idea here, it is to desire the kingdom of God without the king. I got that phrase from uh, Mark Sayers. Mark Sayers is a uh, pastor in uh, Australia, a cultural commentator. In one of his books, he talks about the fact that secular culture, post-Christian secular culture, is characterized in a lot of ways by a desire for the kingdom of God, for the, for the good things of the kingdom of God, but without the king. And we'll touch on that in the second point. But what I want to say right now is that we are very much the same way. We desire the kingdom of God often apart from the king. That desire for something good apart from God, for the life of the kingdom, apart from submission to the King Jesus Christ, is not something that is unique to secular culture. That's one of the defining characteristics of sinful human nature. We want the gifts. We don't want the giver of the gifts. We want the kingdom. 
but we do not want the king. We desire and we do not have, so we quarrel and fight with whoever gets in our way. And words that should be used to build up end up getting weaponized. And when that happens, we attack when reviled, seeking to revile in return, even when it comes to relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that leads to the second point. We're called to bless when attacked with weaponized words. We're going to look at the second half of verse 9 and then verse 10. But first, I want to point out something. What Peter writes in the second half of verse 9, actually all of verse 9, verse 9 and verse 10, it assumes something. It assumes that we're actually being reviled because we're Christians. And so I have to pause and just ask, are you experiencing that in any way whatsoever? Are you so like the world that there's nothing distinct about you? Or are you so insulated from the world that your distinctiveness can't be seen? Let me say that again. You know, kind of a moment of self-reflection here. Am I so like the world that in my relationships with non-Christians, there's nothing distinctive about me? Or am I so insulated from the world, I don't have any non-Christian friends, that there's no one who sees my distinctiveness, very real that it is, as a Christian? If you are not facing any kind of, uh, you know, vilification, any kind of verbal opposition, any kind of being mocked or even getting sideways glances from people that are non-Christians in your life right now, then probably it is either because you are so like the world that there's nothing distinct about you or you are so insulated from the world because you're not using your words to talk about Jesus that your distinctiveness isn't seen. And so I, if, if anything, I, I hope that what you leave here with this morning is a, a real sense of, man, I don't see myself in the mirror of this text right now. And that's an indicator of another problem, my own personal fear when it comes to bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And so that's assumed in what I'm about to read from 1 Peter 3. Also recognize that everything that Peter says here when it comes to how we respond to being reviled by those outside the church, outside of Christianity, very much applies to when we are reviled by those inside the church because we bring that sin into the Christian community as well. So verses 9 and 10, let's take a look. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him t- keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Stop there. So Peter's writing to Christians who are living it out. Karen Jobes in her commentary on First Peter points out that insult and defamation of character were weapons that were used in Peter's day to publicly shame and discredit people. So here they were, they're living in this culture that's primarily a shame and honor culture and the best way to shame someone and consequently win the battle was to expose them in some way as being less than. 
Now, when that kind of verbal assault came, when those insults and that defamation of character and slander came, what was expected was retaliation. That was just the way it worked in that day and age. Someone hit you verbally, you hit them a hundred times harder back. And Peter says, no, don't respond that way. Now, think about this for just a second. Christians in Peter's day, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, they were being accused of horrible things, cannibalism, because they ate the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Supper was said to be the body and the blood of Christ. They're a bunch of cannibals. They're atheists because they wouldn't worship the emperor. They commit incest because they refer to one another as brother and sister and yet they're married to one another. All these misrepresentations, mischaracterizations, insults, false accusations that are hurled on the church. You would think it would be impossible to not defend your honor and even to strike back. And Peter says, hey, how about this? Why don't you bless those people? How about instead of responding the way in which your heart wants to and the cultural norms would dictate that you would do, how about you just not do that? And instead, actively seek to pronounce and even pursue God's favor upon that person. That's what he's saying in verse 9. How do you get there? I mean, how do we get there? Well, in part, it's by nurturing that kind of heart that we saw in verse 8 in our first point. Nurturing the kind of heart and the kind of character, practicing the giving of wholesome words in Christian community, what we learn here carries over into the culture. So, so part of the way in which we follow that seemingly impossible command to bless when vilified rather than responding in kind, it's something that we learn in here together. Now that assumes a couple of things. A, we're actually close enough that we can see the ways in which we don't get along on everything. And then B, when that happens, we actually push through that instead of running away. If you're a member of this church, the, it's either the fourth or the fifth membership vow, I can't remember now, is a vow in which you pledge to promote the peace and the purity of the church. Which means, I, I mention this every time we do a membership, uh, have people come and say their membership vows. To promote the peace of the church means that you are willing to work through conflict and not just cut and run. To work through conflict means you use your words. It means you use your words in order to bless someone else. Ultimately, you're pursuing God's best for that person and not just wanting to win. So how, how do we get there? Well, part of it is we practice that within the body of Christ. But then I think we need to come back and understand how what James 4, 1, and 2 says about these inordinate desires of the heart, this desire to have the kingdom without the king, that's something that characterizes every human heart. That's something that characterizes the heart of the person that you've been having this back and forth with on Twitter, who maybe you've never met, that person who's posting stuff on Facebook that is so frustrating and you just can't help but comment or it may be that person that wow this still happens you're having an actual conversation with 
who's not a believer. Recognizing that in the heart of that person, just as in your own heart, there is a desire for the kingdom without the king is one way in which you can begin to say, how can I move toward words of blessing for this person rather than cursing? So first, let's deal with something here at the end of verse 9 because it can, it can be confusing here. End of verse 9, Peter writes, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, you, you look at that and you think right away, works righteousness. Peter's calling us to earn our salvation. And the answer to that is no for a couple reasons. One, the word that's translated obtain is usually translated inherit, so there's that aspect of it. But, but even if you translate that word obtain, think about what the blessing is. The blessing is something that Peter unpacked for us right from the beginning of his letter. He talks about, in verses 3 through 9, this great mercy by which we have been caused to be born again. This living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for it, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see where I'm going. This blessing that we're called to obtain slash inherit in chapter 3, verse 9, it refers back to this amazing thing, this being caused to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of the Jesus Christ from the dead, not through our good works. An inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us and for which we are being kept. This is all of God's grace. So obtain there is simply to inherit this great blessing. But then look at verse 10. It's, verse 10 is where I think we get this idea of all people desiring the kingdom without the king. It's not just in James 4, 1 and 2. It's here as well in 1 Peter 3. So verse 10, Peter writes, for whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. But just take that first part of verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. The, 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 to be created in the image of God, to be created as one who seeks to know God, to be created to be one who is in right relationship with God is to be one who is created to long for life and to see good days. This is the way of the kingdom. Commentators point to this passage and say, okay, how do we handle that? Some commentators say, well, this is to do with the, the life of the Christian now, this idea of, of being, you know, living in right relationship with God now. Others say, no, this is what it means to live in right relationship with God after Jesus Christ returns. And still others, I think, rightly point out to the fact that, wait a minute, this is what it means to be created in right relationship, to create it as one who desires to be in right relationship with God, to know the blessing of fellowship with God and all the good that flows from that, and to now, having been those who are inheriting the blessing, to be able to experience now what they will one day know in full, full and final fellowship with God. So all people are created with that desire to love life and to see good days. 
The problem for all of us, apart from God's grace, is we want that, but we don't want the one who gives it. We want the good life of the kingdom, but we don't want the king. The difference for someone who is a Christian and someone who is not a Christian is that by God's grace, a Christian sees that, repents of that, and is reminded by God's grace daily that that good life of the kingdom is something that God is bringing to us. For the non-Christian, that good life of the kingdom as they would define it is something that no God is bringing to them, but that they must obtain for themselves. Something that they have to fight for. And in the culture in which we live now, you, Christian, are the biggest obstacle to that. This weaponization of words, this conflict that's so easy to have on social media. It's not simply that we have different political ideologies and different opinions about things going on in the world. There is a battle that's being waged. A desire for the kingdom of God without being acknowledged as such, without being willing to accept the God who offers it, defined on one's own terms with these Christians getting in the way. How do you respond when reviled with blessing? And that leads to our third point. And this is where Peter goes, I think, with quoting Psalm 34 here. Remember that the king is near and that he hears your desperate words. Remember that the king is here, is near, and he hears your cry. Peter references Psalm 34 here, this quote that you see in verses 10, 11, and 12. It's from Psalm 34. You see it also in chapter 2, verse 3. He alludes to it often throughout the letter as well. Psalm 34 is about David's time in exile. It's when David had to flee Jerusalem. He was being pursued David wrote that psalm. That psalm was then read and sung by Jews while they were in exile. And so, you know, what's David calling people to do in that psalm? Well, you can turn back there if you want. If not, I'll just read a couple uh, references from it. In, uh, in Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, David is calling on these Jewish people in exile, facing opposition because of their faith, to worship God. Worship the Lord. Verses 1 through 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's calling on them to seek the Lord. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He's calling on them to take refuge in the Lord. Chapter 30, uh, Psalm 34, verse 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He's calling on them to fear the Lord. That's chapter 34, verse 9. He's calling on them to not speak evil or deceit in 34, 13. And that's the part that Peter references in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Why is David calling on us to do this? He calls on us to do this because one day the Lord is going to redeem and vindicate his people. That's at the end of Psalm 34 and verse 22. But for now, David is saying God is near. In chapter 34, Psalm 34, verse 18, David writes this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. 
Back in 34, verse 15, David writes, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, meaning his face is ever looking toward his own, and his ears toward their cry. So why would Peter pick that up? Why would Peter take Psalm 34? Of all the Psalms, of all the Old Testament passages he could refer to, he goes back to Psalm 34 and, and has it not only in the background of this entire letter, but pulls out key portions. And the reason is simply this. You, O oh Christians, facing opposition in Asia Minor, you need to be reminded that the same God who delivered David, the same God who was with David, the same God who was near to David, the same God who called on David to know him and worship him, and the same God who was with the exiles of, of, uh, of the Jewish exiles, well, they were cast out. Well, they were facing opposition. That same God is with you. He's near to you. He hears your cry. In fact, David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around you. Peter's burden is that we know that God is now with us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That phrase, the angel of the Lord, back in Psalm 34, so fascinating. What, who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. Pre-incarnate, you know, Jesus kind of showing up in this really kind of cool and interesting way in the Old Testament, but it's Jesus. But the cross and in the incarnation, Jesus came in the flesh. He drew near. He was reviled by people just like us. And he did not revile in return. That's what we saw back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. As we see in Isaiah 53, verse 7. And from the cross, Jesus did not curse. He blessed. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is ever drawing near to his people even now. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, but by his Spirit, he is present with us. He listens. He hears our cry. And that's the motive for doing the same when people revile us. I, I know, I can see it in your eyes right now. I'm not sure how this applies to me. And that may be because you're just not living a distinctively Christian life such that people notice and are opposed. So maybe just tuck this away and work on that. But also maybe it's that your heart is so attuned, so accustomed to reviling that the thought of actually speaking words of blessing is just hard to fathom. And if that's where you find yourself, look to the cross. Look to Jesus, who when reviled, did not revile in return. Who when cursed, blessed. Blessed people just like you and just like me. The long life and the good days of the kingdom of God, they're yours now to experience in part and they will one day be yours to experience in full if your hope is in Jesus Christ. That inordinate desire that you wrestle with and every human being wrestles with is something that you can set aside because God is giving you the desire of your heart by giving you himself. You want the kingdom? 
seek the king. You want to bless people who are seeking the kingdom without the king? Point them to the king. Ask yourself as you're on Facebook later today or Twitter or whatever it is that you tend to engage in with those who are opposed to you and what you believe, ask yourself, what can I say? What can I tweet? Or better yet, how can I give this person a call and say words that will actually serve to point them closer to Jesus Christ and not simply be words that I can use to prove my point? What if, as Christians, we live that way? It was distinctive for Christians to live that day in Peter's age, and it will be distinctive for Christians to live that way in our day and age. The good news to which we need to hold fast in order to bless when reviled is that Jesus Christ came and did not speak back with reviling, but rather blessed when people just like us were reviling him. As you remember that, you will be able to follow in the way of Jesus, blessing when reviled because you have entrusted yourself to the one who judges justly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to first and foremost put ourselves in a position where it may be that simply because we are living distinctly Christian lives, we're reviled. And Lord, for whatever reason that that may not be happening, either because we're so like the world that there's really nothing distinctive about us, and so there's nothing to revile, or because we're so insulated from the world that, that no one sees our distinctiveness, or whatever the case may be in terms of our own lives in this world, in this brief time in which we have, would you work on that, that we might really seek to be people who are living as missionaries to our workplace, to our school, and even in our own homes. And Lord, having done that, when we are spoken against, help us to remember that the cursing that would fall on us, Lord, it's ultimately a curse that you bore in our place. Help us to be so caught up in the reality that we are people who have been welcomed into relationship with the King, that we might know our heart's desires, that we are able to, when reviled, point other people to the same King Jesus who has called us to be his own. Lord, would you help us to do this even today? Lord, when we're, some of us, on social media and are tempted to fire back, Lord, Lord would you give us a heart that would desire to point people to you, that you might win their hearts, which is so much more important than us winning an argument. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.